Lord, we are so grateful that you sent your Son. He is so precious. He is so trustworthy, so deserving of our trust, Lord. And Lord, we know he was precious to you. He was precious to you, his Father. And it cost you so much to send him. As a father, it cost you so much to send him. And we are the recipients of that mercy. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for him becoming one of us. That we would have a faithful high priest like Hebrews speaks about. A faithful high priest who knows how we've suffered. Who is not unfamiliar with our pain. But knows it intimately. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Thank you that he is close to us. And that he still intercedes for us even now. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen. So tonight... We continue on in Genesis. We've been there a while. We're going to be there till about Christmas. Actually, right before Christmas. Cool. So, we still got a while. Still got a while. That's awesome. <clears throat> this week we're going through Genesis 16. So, if you have your Bibles, feel free to open to them. If you don't, the, the text will be on the screen. This is Genesis 16. There's only 16 verses, 1 to 16. So, maybe it'll be a shorter week this week. We'll see. This week is entitled, The God Who Sees Me. The God Who Sees Me. This is the story of Hagar. This wonderful, oft-neglected, often-overlooked woman of God. A woman of God. Interestingly, an Egyptian woman of God. Right? We'll see this story, how it plays out. And there's a lot of little textual clues, a little literary clues that people miss when they come to this story that are intriguing. Okay, let's start. Genesis 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. Okay, so we're back all the way now to Genesis 11. If you remember, when the family was introduced, Abram and his family were introduced. This note was made. Sarai was barren, right? And remember, we've been walking down the genealogy all through Genesis, and we hit a stopping point, and that stopping point is Abram, because he has no kids. How is the genealogy going to go on? How will the line of God's chosen people continue if Abram has no kids? If he's the chosen one and he has no children, how can the genealogy move on, right? So we're left with that conundrum. And then we're back here. Again, we're hearing it again. Hey, I just want to remind you. This is the, the author saying, hey, I just want to remind you. Sarai had had no children, right? Abram was still childless. But she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. If this is a Semitic name, by the way, Hagar probably means flight. Interesting with her story being a story of fleeing, right? Interesting. Okay. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened 
to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as his wife. Now, this practice was very common. Okay, I, We talked about it a little bit, but this is a good moment to, to talk about it again. There is nothing more shameful in these cultures, in the cultures of this day, than being childless for a woman. It is the ultimate shame because their, their value, their purpose was around child rearing, right? The, the, the woman who would do honor to her husband would bear him many children, right? And so her worth and her value is all tied up in this issue, in this barrenness. Sarai is deeply grieved that she cannot bear children, especially for a man who's considered to be God's chosen, a man of God, right? She even admits it. The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She's right in one sense, right? The, the sense that God, it, it's, it, the Old Testament continues to say that God is in control of these events, these massive events, such as, as birth. And he's, he's dictating what's happening. And so she understands. She lays it at God's feet and says, no, though this must be the Lord's doing. And it's interesting in light of the fact that God himself is the one who has promised that a child will come, right? So at one level, I, I have no doubt Sarai is right, that the Lord, has, it's not in his timing yet. Now, we know it's going to happen later. We've read Genesis before. But at this point in the story, there's this frustration, this agitation, this, this lack of fulfillment in their life. That's like, why has this not happened? I don't know if you've been around anyone who's, who's sterile or infertile. Uh, it's a tragic thing. I've been around many people, who, uh, many couples who struggle with that. It is deeply, deeply identity, uh, a, a deep identity pain that resides in people who, who struggle with that. Um, it, it's, it's heartbreaking. And Sarah's in that condition. And so she comes up with this plan. Now the question is, I, I, I know when we went through Genesis 12, I kind of pushed back on the idea that this was a deep sin that Abram did. Now we're at Genesis 16, and oddly enough, uh, it seems like most people don't mention that this seems to be a pretty grievous sin. And I don't know why people don't mention it, because textually, the narrator makes it very clear that what is about to happen is a huge sin. Huge. And how do we know that? Well, we know it because we listen to the language of what is said in this, in this uh, verse right here, in these two verses. Okay? What is said? It is said that Abram does what? He listens to the voice of his wife, and Sarai took Hagar and gave her to her husband. Does that ring any bells? What are they alluding to? Eve. Genesis 3. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, what did she do? She took from its fruit and she gave to her husband. And then in verse 17, this is God punishing Adam. What does God say to Adam in the punishment? He says... Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. 
the author of Genesis 16 is clearly alluding to the fall. He is putting this sin, now we know it's obviously not as grievous a sin as the fall, but he's putting it, he's equating it, he's comparing it to the fall. That's pretty big, right? The language that the author is using is trying to compare this to the fall of man. Okay, That's big. In the author's eyes, this is a huge, a grave mistake on Sarai and Abram's part, right? Both Sarai for trying to, to, to make the promise happen in her own way, and to Abram for not knowing better, for not doing better, for not calling his wife to better, right? They're both at fault. And just like here, right, God doesn't just blame Eve, he doesn't just lay it at Eve's feet. This is Abram's sin as well. Here, the Lord is speaking to Adam, and he says, you're the one who listened to the voice of your wife. You didn't have to. This is your sin, too. This is not just Eve's fault, right? It's the same here. This is Sarai and Abram's sin. And you'll see, when we get to verse 6, by the end of verse 6, very short, compact story, but by the end of verse 6, all hell has broken loose in their relationships, in the relationships of these three people. Just hell has been unleashed on them because of this choice, because of the sinfulness of this choice, right? So verse four, what happens? Abram consents to his wife's plan, his wife's scheme. He goes in to Hagar and Hagar conceives. And when Hagar saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. Now that's kind of a, ambiguous phrase. We don't exactly know what that means in terms of how Hagar treated Sarai. But most likely what it means is that she had some kind of contempt for her, right? And, and, and since it's around this issue of childlessness, it, and she's pregnant, that seems to be what they're implying. There seems to be some level of Hagar seeing that she has a status change because she's been pregnant and Sarai is still barren. Right, but remember, this is this is a different culture. This is not uh, this is not him going into like a prostitute. Right, this woman Hagar has become a wife to him. Now she's not the primary wife; that's still Sarah, but she's become a wife. She actually has some legal rights in this situation, as as what the the term that we use is concubine. Right, a, a second wife, a, a secondary wife. They're not the prime wife, but they're, they're a secondary wife. And she's got some rights. And what's interesting is no one does right by her. Right? Sarai, who is her mistress, the one in command over her, she doesn't do right by her. And Abram, Abram is meant to protect her because this is his wife. Right? This is a second wife, but it's still his wife. He's meant to protect her. What happens, though, when... This slight happens. Sarai receives this slight from Hagar, and it's, it's almost too much for her to take, isn't it? Because she says this, Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. Sarai is wrathful. She is filled with anger, and she wants to lay it at Abram's feet, which is interesting also in light of the Genesis 3 story, isn't it? What did we see in Genesis 3? The blame-shifting piece, right? 
Now Sarai, who concocted this whole plan, says, This is your fault, Abram. Why did you do this to me? She's the one who came up with the whole plan. Now it's Abram's fault. Now what Abram should do is protect Hagar. What does he say? He doesn't say that. Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and Hagar fled from her, her, from her presence, right? She's cruel to Hagar. She mistreats her. She abuses her, and it causes her to run. What was the whole point of this scenario, by the way? The child. It was so that Sarai could bear a child through Hagar. Hagar just ran away with the child. <laughs> Everything has blown up in their faces. They have, they have ruined, they have humiliated, they have oppressed Hagar to the point that she feels she has to flee for her life. She runs. Sarai is filled with wrath. She's angry at her husband. Their relationship is broken. Abram, who is meant to protect this, this woman who is now his wife, does nothing to protect her and submits her completely to the authority of Sarai to be abused and mistreated. All of their relationships are completely out of whack, out of sync with what God would want, right? It's exactly what we saw in Genesis 3. Human relationship has been obliterated right? It's been obliterated. So Hagar flees for her life. And what's she want to do? Well, remember what I told you? She's Egyptian. Where do you think she's going to go? She runs back to Egypt. The very next verse. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. So she's on the way back to Egypt. Shur would be the area of the Sinai Peninsula. She's heading home. She's Egyptian. She's going back to Egypt. And now this angel of the Lord, interestingly, this is the first time this character has shown up. The angel of the Lord. First time he ever shows up is here. Genesis 16. Angel of the Lord. Angel, by the way, we've talked about this, means messenger, right? Malach in Hebrew, it means a messenger, someone who gives a message. This is the messenger of the Lord. It's kind of a mysterious figure at this point. We're only 16 chapters into Genesis. It's his first appearance. We don't know who it is, but we know it's an angel of the Lord, a messenger from the Lord, right? And so he says to her, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And Hagar said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Okay, the angel of the Lord is here. What is going on? This is a well scene. This is a well scene. They're meeting at a well. And for all intents and purposes, though it doesn't say it here, it's really clear that Hagar thinks she's meeting a, a human, a normal human. They just have a conversation. She's not shocked by it. She's not bowing down in worship. She's not afraid. Any of the things you typically see in angelic appearances in the scriptures, Hagar doesn't do any of them. What it seems to be is this angel of the Lord has appeared in human form, and she thinks she's just meeting someone at a well. 
Now, she obviously must know something's up. She, as the story progresses, she gets more and more and more clear who this person is. She recognizes it. But at this point, she probably just is like, this is weird. How does this person know who I am? <laughs> How could this person know who I am? Right? So they call, the angel of the Lord calls her by name, talks to her, and she openly responds. What are you, where are you from? And what are you doing? She says, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress. Again, think of Genesis 3. Think of Genesis 4. This is the first time since Genesis 4 with Cain and Abel that the Lord has shown up to someone explicitly, shown up in form to them to ask them this kind of question. Where are you? Remember Adam? Where are you? Remember Cain? Sin is crouching at your door. Where is your brother, Cain? And now the angel of the Lord says, shows up and says this to Hagar. Where are you coming from? Where are you going? But listen to the difference in the responses. What's Adam's response? He blames Eve. What's Cain's response? He pretends. He lies to the Lord. He says, I don't know where my brother is. Am I supposed to be my brother's guard? Am I his keeper? What does Hagar say? The complete opposite. She's fully honest. She has no pretense about being open about who she is and where she's come from. She tells it exactly like it is. I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. She's open with the Lord. She's honest. So, what's the response? Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Wow. That's a rough calling. You're having this interaction with this person at a well, and they tell you to go back where you came from. You just told them you're fleeing from the presence of your mistress. And this person tells you, go back to them, submit to their authority. That is not a fun message to share. Go back into this awful situation. Submit yourself to it. He continues, moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, behold, you are with child and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Yishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. Yishmael means God hears. God hears. Why is he heard? Because he heard that she was afflicted. He's heard about her suffering. So name your son Yishmael. Yishmael will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him and he will live to the east of all his brothers. Oof, is that supposed to be encouraging or... And our day, it doesn't sound like it, does it? It sounds kind of sad. Like, well, that's kind of a, that's a hard prophecy to swallow about who your kid's going to be. And you have to understand it from Hagar's perspective. 
What was Hagar just told to do? Return and submit to the authority of Sarai. <clears throat> Return and be her, her servant. Be her maid. Submit yourself. Does it sound like Ishmael is going to be a submitter? No, the Lord is prophesying over her. This angel is giving her a message that's telling her, you will not be in submission forever. Your son will not be in submission to others. He will free himself. What was bondage for you, Hagar, will be freedom for your son. Because he will be against everyone and everyone will be against him. He will buck the yoke on his shoulders and become his own person, become a free person. But for now, Hagar, go back and submit yourself to the suffering which you are under. So now you've got these two things and they seem at odds. They're hard because you've got this horrible feeling uh, towards this call. Go back and suffer. And at the same time, you've got the promise. Your descendants are going to be too many to count. And your son, this son you're bearing, he is going to buck servitude. And he will be a free person, living to the east of all his brothers in freedom. You know, this is a hard message to give in some ways because no one wants to hear that the, that the God of our lives might ask us to go back and submit to suffering. And there, I will admit, I mean, in the history of the church, we have, we have done this wrong sometimes, right? Like, this is, I'm not saying that every situation we're called to go back and submit. This is not a one-size-fits-all policy. I'm not saying that. There have been many situations where uh, people need to leave an abusive situation. They need to get out of it. Or they should get out of it. The church should help them get out of it. And they've, unfortunately, there have been many cases in which the church has said, no, 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 just go back and submit. It's okay. That's not necessarily the case. It can be great evil being done to these people, and they should escape it. But I equally have to say, listen to the story of Hagar. We can't say that that's always the other way either. There are times where the Lord calls us to submit to suffering. That's a hard calling. This is Hagar being told by the Lord to go back to her abusive situation. That's hard. That's hard. To, that's hard to... It's not palatable, right? It doesn't seem like what we'd expect <coughs> from our understanding. But the Lord knows. The Lord who is speaking openly to Hagar and, and talking to her knows what she needs to do. This is a special situation. The Lord tells her to go back and submit and that her servitude will not last forever. Her son will buck that and that she's going to be great. She'll have great, she'll have a great name, right? She'll have descendants too numerous to count. By the way, what, what does that promise sound like? It sounds like Abram's promise. See, this child she's about to have is still whose child? 
still Abram's. And so this child still falls under the blessing that Abram is given. So Hagar and her descendants are going to receive the blessing of Abram. They're going to receive the blessing of a descendants too numerous to count. And not only that, they're even going to fulfill that for Abram, aren't they? They're going to continue the line that makes Abram's descendants too numerous to count, right? This is a great promise for Hagar, but it's a hard situation. I don't know how I'd respond in it. You know, the Lord calls you back to suffering. How are you going to receive that? You're just going to wave it off and be like, whoa, that's weird. That's, that's wrong. I, I, don't, I don't really believe that was the Lord. I could see myself doing that, if I'm honest. I must have misinterpreted something or misheard it. What's Hagar's response? She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, Elroy. Elroy. The God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? At this point, the angel of the Lord has disappeared, right? He's no longer here. And Hagar realizes who she just saw. She saw the Lord, or at least the representation of the Lord. She saw him face to face, speaking like a man speaking to a woman at a well. Another way this this line she says could be translated is the idea of, it's all about sight, right? It's about seeing. Have I seen the one who sees me? Right, God, the one who sees everything. Have I seen the one who sees me? She's dumbfounded by the reality she just encountered God. She's not grieved at his calling. She's not, this is too hard, I can't do this, God. She's just amazed that she encountered the one who sees her. So what she do? She names the well, Bir Lachai Roy, the well of the living one who sees me. Lachai, you've probably heard that before, right? Lachayim, you ever heard? Lachayim, to life. Lachai, the living one. The well of the living one who sees me, Bir Lachai Roy. She is struck by her encounter. She's struck by her encounter. Behold, this well is between Kadesh and, and Bered. This is telling us she's still in the Southland. She's in the Sinai Peninsula that we talked about. She's down south. So she sees God. She sees the one who sees her. She names the place after the living one who sees her. And what she do? Does she go back to Egypt? She's like, okay, that was a cool experience. I'm going to continue on my merry way. Nope, she goes back and what she do? Hagar 
bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Okay, there's one interesting thing left in this part right here, which is this. Whose child was this supposed to be? The whole point of it was that it would be Sarai's child. Interestingly, the story now calls Ishmael Abram's son. It makes a point to say, no, no, this son did not become Sarai's. This was Abram's son. <coughs> Abram's son, Hagar, bore him for Abram. Sarai's child has not come yet. And the very next chapters are going to deal with that, right? The very next chapter is going to be the covenant of the seed, right? The covenant of circumcision. And then it's going to go on to talk about the promise of Isaac. And they're going to name him Yitzhak. Why? Because... Sarai laughs when she hears about it. So they name him Laughing. Yitzhak. But here, Abram's son is Ishmael. Hagar goes back. It almost seems to imply that maybe Abram finally did step up and protect her in some way, right? That he did, maybe he did something. And again, that's, that's speculative. But maybe he, maybe he did. At this point, there was some level of protection for her when she returned. Maybe God had changed her fortune in some way that we don't know about. It never says. We do know later she's driven out, right? The promise about him growing up free, mm -hmm. that comes true. They're driven out away. We'll see that later <clears throat> in Genesis. But at this moment, Hagar has to go back to this awful situation but knows that the one who sees her has heard her affliction. That's the comfort for her. The Lord, the living one who sees her, has heard her affliction. That's enough for her. And this whole story is, is tragic and beautiful, isn't it? I look at my own life and I can see moments where I've done that exact thing like Sarah, where I've like been waiting for the promise and, and taking it into my own hands. Like, Lord, if you're not going to do this, I will do it myself. I'm tired of waiting on you. And inevitably, the, the consequences are disastrous. They're monumental, often. But even then, right, even in the midst of that, this, this woman who is so oppressed, so mistreated, is called even to go back to that place of suffering, which again is something I relate to so often. God often calls us back to our pain points, doesn't he? Often calls us back to the places where our, our damage has happened. Because he wants to deal with it, one. I think that's the main reason, if I'm honest. And in my own life, I see that. He wants us to deal with the hurt. There's no way to avoid it and deal with it. There's no way to pretend it didn't happen and deal with it. It's one or the other. You have to go back to it to deal with it. 
But still, what is the hope? What is the comfort? Despite all the suffering, despite all the tragedy, what's the comfort? We serve the God who sees us. Mm -hmm. We serve the God who has heard of our affliction. And the beautiful thing about this story, think about this. Think about this dynamic in in terms of what we're going to see in Genesis and what we're going to see in the Pentateuch, specifically the Exodus, right? which I've told you many times now. The Exodus looms large over Genesis. It's the defining event of the Old Testament, the Exodus. Right? It's looming large over everything. And in light of the events of the Exodus, think about the dynamics of this story. This is an Egyptian being oppressed by a Hebrew. This story, I didn't mention it earlier, uses the terms of oppression and slavery and all the terms that are used of the Israelites in Egypt. And they're applied to Hagar, the Egyptian. What does that tell us about God's character? It doesn't matter if you're Israelite. It doesn't matter if you're an Egyptian. God looks out for the oppressed. He looks out for the afflicted. God has a special love for the, for the downtrodden, for the abused, for those who have no justice, for the oppressed and the weak and the weary and the miserable. God's, God sees Hagar. Hagar the Egyptian. What's the defining event for these people? And Egypt oppressed us. And here, when they read Genesis 16, they see that their ancestors oppressed an Egyptian. And God was with that Egyptian. And God saw her, and he heard her affliction. Again, heard her affliction. Exact same language of the Exodus. When God speaks to Moses, he says, I have heard of my people's affliction." That's the beauty of our God. He's with the miserable people of this earth, no matter who they are. And I love Genesis 16. I love Genesis 16 because it goes against so many of our assumptions. It goes against, God would never, ever put me in a situation that could be hard <laughs> or that would be, that would be suffering or that would be... no. Look at Hagar. She's called to go back to it when she's escaping from it. It goes against like this idea that the Jews had. Like, no, this is all about us. It's about ethnic Israel. No, he's with the oppressed Egyptian. We have all these assumptions of who God is and, and what he's going to do and the thing that stands out to me, and, it, and it's always stood out my whole life, is that we serve this compassionate God. And the outcast, and the foreigner, and the widow, and the orphan, God has a special love for. That's the four terms that are used over and over throughout the Old Testament. And that James refers to in the New Testament when he says, pure religion is this, undefiled religion is this, to look after Widows and orphans in their distress. Right? We talk about those categories. Widow, orphan, foreigner, right? The sojourner. 
sometimes it's translated, and the outcast. God has a special love for the miserable people. Those who no one in human society has compassion for. The ones that we just cast aside and say they don't matter. They don't matter. Who cares what happens to them? The God who sees them does. The God who sees them cares what happens to them. He has a special love. A love that he reserves for them. So we're called to do that too. We're called to be those people who have a special love, who have a special compassion for the outcast, for the foreigner, for the widow, for the orphan. And everyone those four represent, right? Those categories are much broader than just, you know, those four things. But they represent the class of people we're talking about, the miserable, right? God loves them. God sees them. We've got to be people that love and see them too. That's one thing. And anytime I have the chance to say that, I want to say that because I love the outcast. But also, it's a reminder for us to not take God's promise into our own hands. To trust and wait on his promise. Remember what it said? It said, Abram has been living in the land. It said it at the beginning of this account. Abram has been living in the land for 10 years. 10 years he's been waiting. When did he receive the promise of a seed? When he was told to leave. When he was told to leave Haran, he received the promise. He's been waiting a decade for this kid. You know how much longer he waits for the covenant between this and 17? It's another 14 years. He's been waiting for Isaac for 20 years. Four years of his life. The promise unfulfilled. I would have given up after a year. <laughs> this is 24 years. This is the man of faith. Remember Genesis 15? God said, I will give you a descendant. And what does Abram do? He amends God. He believed him and it was credited to him as righteousness. Because he believed. He amened God. He said, I confirm what you say. I believe what you say. But he's been waiting 24 years. Can you blame Sarai? Wouldn't we all feel that way? 24 years she sat in her shame. In her barrenness. Longer than that. The length of her life, really. But since we've met her, since the beginning of the part of Genesis in which we met her, she'd been waiting 24 years before Isaac. Of course she wants to take it into her hands. That's the human way. We gotta be like Abram in Genesis 15 and believe in the promise. It will come. And I say that in, in a general way. I say that in, in a cosmic way. We're still waiting on the promise. We're still waiting for Jesus' return. We're still waiting for the consummation of all things. Lord, let today be the day. If only we long for his return. We still wait for that promise as every generation of Christians has before us and every generation, every generation of Christians will until he does return.
We still await for the promise. We still hope. We still believe in it. And at the same time, not just in a general way, but in a specific way. Maybe God's promised some very specific things to you. Very specific individual promises that the Lord has given you. I'm sure all of us have some of them. For those of you who have promises from God yet unfulfilled, trust in the promise. Don't give up yet. Don't take it into your own hands. Believe. Believe. Believe in the promise. It's coming. His word is assured. It will come to pass. Believe in the promise. Trust him that he will do it. Don't take it into your own hands. Look at the destruction it can that it, it, it rots in so many lives. Not just Sarai's. Look at all the affected lives. Trust in the promise. That's what I have for you tonight. That's the example of Hagar. She's a woman of faith. She's not Adam. She's not Cain. No, when the Lord asks where she's from and where she's going, she answers in complete sincerity and in complete honesty. And when he tells her what to do, she does it. She does it. And Hagar, Hagar receives the first annunciation of a birth in the, in the entire scriptures. That's a very common thing that happens in the scriptures. You get an announcement of a birth that's happening. Hagar's the first to receive it. Who in the New Testament looks like Hagar? Mary. Mary does. The mother of our Lord. She hears the announcement of his birth and what she do. She doesn't fight it. She doesn't say, I'm, I have never had sex. She doesn't say any of that. She says, may it be done as you said, Lord. That's Hagar. She doesn't question. She doesn't fight it. She doesn't say, I don't want to go back. Would you really put me in this situation, God? She just does it because she trusts in the promise. That's a woman of faith. It's a woman of faith. And God promises that he's heard her affliction and that he sees her. And Hagar goes back to her suffering knowing that that is the case because she met him. She met him, the living one who sees her. I hope that's an encouragement to you tonight for all of you here waiting on a promise. <coughs> hope it's an encouragement to see Hagar, the woman of faith. Now, it wasn't easy. It's not a simple thing. It's not something we just like, oh man, what a, what a trivial thing. It's not like her situation was hard. No, it's awful. It's terrible. And she still trusts. Still believes. Let me bless you tonight. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person in this room, and I do pray for every person waiting on a promise. Would you bring it to fulfillment soon?
I pray that for these people because I know you love them and you want to bring it to pass and you are the God of your word who makes miracles happen, who make the, the seedless have seed, the barren are given children. The blind see and the deaf hear and the mute speak at your word. So I pray for each of these people that I dearly love in this room. Would you bring their promises to pass, God? God of salvation, God of mercy, God of compassion. And the other prayer that I always would be remiss if I missed the chance to say, Lord, would you help them heal? In the broken areas of their life, in the areas in which there's pain, would you bring them back to them so that they can heal? You are the God of healing. And you desire healing for your people. You desire reconciliation. You desire hope and peace and justice. Would you bring those things to pass for each of us, Lord? Bring us to the relationships we need to reconcile. Bring us to the pain points that we need to enter back into so that we can deal with them and be more whole, more full, full of shalom, peace, wholeness, so that we can be the people that you, God, have called us to be and so that we can go find other outcasts, other widows, other orphans, other foreigners to receive the love of the living one who sees them right where they are. Do your work of meeting people at the wells of their lives. Would you meet more? We all need you. And God, as we sit here at Wellspring, would you meet us at this well? Because we all need you here. We need an encounter with the God who sees us. You meet us here week by week by week. That we leave more in love with each other, with people, with the outcast, and with you. In Jesus' name, and by your Spirit's mighty power. Amen. Amen. Amen.